Well, grab a cup of coffee and let's chat for a bit. Today's topic of our chat is sometimes I don't submit. Sometimes I simply don't submit. I do my own thing. I have a nice lady. She gives me directions when I need them the most. No, not my wife. The wonderful computer voice on my phone's GPS. And I've learned, especially for some of the new parts of the city where I live, and for first visits to new locations in other cities or other provinces in my country, that I need help getting around and reaching my destination. So every three minutes or so, I have this nice electronic lady telling me when to turn right or when next to turn left, when a major intersection is upcoming that will require me to be in a certain lane so that I can turn a certain way after I need to slow down. It seems that, for the most part, the GPS works fine unless the area has just recently been developed. Then it has yet to be programmed into the GPS and the sweet lady goes silent and is of no help whatsoever. There was one other time the kind-hearted lady with directions goes silent when I tire of hearing her voice and simply turn the darn thing off and thus trust my own wonderful sense of direction. This lack of trust on my part and my failure to submit to the voice and the GPS often leads me to an unintentioned destination, arriving at a place where I had no intention of being, as well as having to admit to those in the car with me that I am lost. That's something most males don't like to admit. If I would have trusted and submitted to the kind GPS lady, I would have had the best and the shortest path to my desired destination. And the same is true about the relationship between submission to God and our ability to choose the right path, the best path, and reaching the desired destination. Now I realize that submission is not your favorite word. It's not my favorite word either. My favorite word is coffee. But because I'm not sure how helpful a teaching on brewing and drinking coffee would be, we will stick to talking about sometimes I don't submit. And the truth is, our failure to trust and submit to our Heavenly Father always, almost always, will lead us to unintended destinations. But instead of simply wasting a bit of time when you're driving and a lot of gas, these detours can eat up years of our lives. The challenging aspect about picking the right path is that the choices are now, but the outcomes to our choices are later. The decisions you make today have ramifications down the road. Sometimes the outcomes happen tomorrow. You know, you studied for a test on Tuesday night and did well on Wednesday. You read several books six months ago, took notes from them on Monday and Tuesday, and taught well on Wednesday online with the youth leaders from Kazakhstan. The problem, however, is that most of the time the outcomes of the decisions we make now won't be felt, won't be seen, won't be experienced until much later. So, for example, the paths you choose in your 20s as a single person impacts what happens to you in your 30s when you're married with kids. The financial path you choose early in your life to spend or save 
impacts what happens financially as you face retirement. Unfortunately, you and I don't know the outcome of many of the decisions we make until it's too late to do anything about it. Sure, sometimes we're glad. Oftentimes we're disappointed, or worse, devastated. Regardless of the outcome, one thing is certain. We cannot go back in time, we cannot reset the clock, and we cannot recapture those years. They're gone forever. There is no way to unmake the consequences of those decisions, which is why it's so critical for us to follow the right directions and make the right decisions up front. But how do we do that? How do we make wise decisions? Well, like I said, we make choices today and won't know the effects of those choices for years or even decades to come. There's a delayed reaction between the first cigarette as a teen and emphysema at 50. There's a delay between casual sex as a teen and cervical cancer or infertility at 30. There's a relationship between the habit of investing in an RRSP in your 20s and retiring with a decent amount of funding at 60. Now, some of those outcomes are obvious because of the abundance of available data. The warning about the effects of smoking printed on every pack of smokes, the teaching about STDs you sat through and were a little uncomfortable about in health class in high school. Frequently, however, we face decisions where the outcomes aren't so clear-cut and neither are they so specific. And even when we ask someone for help in that decision, someone who knows the area we're making decisions in, we often don't follow the wise advice based on the experience that they give us. Or we face a screen full of statistics as we Google something telling us what the odds of success or failure are, but we ignore them and assume, as we often do, that we know better or that we are the exception to the rule, the exception to all those statistics. I mean, let's face it, we have all ignored good advice at some point in our lives. We've ignored advice from doctors, coaches, physical therapists, motivational speakers, nutritionalists, finance experts, preachers, marriage counselors, friends, even our mother-in-law. The list goes on and on. And the embarrassing thing is, in most cases, we paid for the advice we ignored. And looking back, our lives would be richer today and more fulfilling if we had done something with what we heard. So if good information isn't enough to guarantee good decisions leading to great outcomes, then what do we need? What are we missing? I'm glad you asked. Choosing the right path begins with submission, not information. Not even direction like a GPS. Submission, not information. Making the right decisions specifically means submission to the one who knows where each path leads as well as where it doesn't lead. Submission to the one who knows what's best for you better than you know what's best for you. It's tempting to think that information alone is enough. You know, Google it and find out how to do this or that. But we all have our own illustrations or examples to prove that information alone is not the answer. 
Generally speaking, information is not our problem because there is plenty of that available. Independence is our problem. And the solution for independence is that dreaded S-word, submission. When you and I get ahead of God by thinking we can do just fine without his direction, or by relying solely on conventional or worldly wisdom, things don't go so well. The problem, of course, is that sometimes it takes years, some of our best years, to discover that we have made a mistake by following conventional wisdom. And that's why we have the famous piece of advice by most parents to their children, do as I say, not as I did. So let's talk about the smartest man in the room. If ever there was a man who could have trusted in his own ability to discern which path to choose, it was King Solomon. The Bible refers to Solomon as the wisest man who ever lived. Heck, he wrote three books in the Bible. Proverbs, which is well worth reading as soon as possible. Ecclesiastes, don't read it until you're over 40. And the Song of Solomon, which you should only read after you're married or if you think the Bible's boring. Inside those three books, which, by the way, scholars refer to as wisdom literature, Solomon displayed his remarkable wisdom, his insight, into all realms of science, mathematics, business, marriage, and justice. Name the topic, and his wealth of understanding was unequaled. But this wasn't the result of being born to smart parents. Solomon's insight was due in great part to God's unique intervention in his life. And perhaps you've heard the story, and even if you had, I'm going to tell it to you again. When Solomon assumed the throne in the place of his father, David, he was around 20 years old. David had been a great warrior. Solomon was a great, well, we don't know that he was great at anything. So we shouldn't be surprised to discover that he felt a bit overwhelmed with the responsibility of leading his nation. Not to mention his dad left him with the responsibility as well of building the temple. And at that point in time, supposedly, their thinking was it would be the only temple the nation would ever have. And as far as we know, Solomon didn't know the first thing about construction. As Solomon was settling in, to his royal role, God communicated to him in a dream. To paraphrase, God said, Solomon, because I love your father, I love you. And because I made a promise to your father, I want to make a promise to you. And here's my promise. Ask me anything you want. Just make a request and I'll give it to you. You want long life? You got it. You want money? No problem. So God tells Solomon that he has a blank check. Imagine that. What would you have asked for at 20 years old? Solomon asked for wisdom. Wisdom. And really, that's a bit odd because you would have already had to have had a boatload of wisdom to even come up with that response to God's request. Apparently, Solomon was just wise enough to know how wise he wasn't. So he asked for more wisdom. Here's how he put it. 1 Kings chapter 3. You'll want to go there. 1 Kings chapter 3. We're going to start reading verse 7 and go through to 9. Here's how Solomon asked for more wisdom. 
Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted from multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? God was so pleased with Solomon's request that he gave him all the stuff I probably would have asked for to begin with. Verses 11 to 13 in 1 Kings chapter 3. And so God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And sure enough, Solomon became extraordinarily wealthy and extremely powerful. There was peace along the borders of Israel to the north, south, east, and west. Kings and queens from surrounding nations traveled great distances to come and sit at his feet and listen. In time, Solomon's kingdom was the envy of the ancient world. Many, in fact, refer to this as the golden age of Israel. And what's my point? If there ever was a person who could say, God, now that I've got the wisdom I need, and I have access to all the available information, feel free to go and do what God does because I've got everything I need to call my own shots. You're hereby dismissed, I can take it from here. If there was ever a person who could say that, it would be Solomon. But Solomon was wise enough to know better. He knew wisdom and information alone were not enough. Wisdom and information don't guarantee anything. Even he knew better than to trust in his judgment alone. Later in life, he would offer this advice to anybody wise enough to listen. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Don't trust in your heart. Trust God with your heart. Let me repeat that a few times. Don't trust in your heart. Trust God with your heart. Don't trust in your heart. Trust God with your heart. Don't trust in your heart. Because it's going to take you down the wrong path. It's going to help you to make decisions you don't want to make. When you're a little older, you're going to look back and wish you hadn't made. Trust God with your heart. The term translated trust carried with it the idea of lying helplessly face down. In other words, vulnerable, dependent, submitted. And then notice the contrast, lean to, as in don't prop yourself up with. The term translated lean literally means to prop something up against something else, to be supported by it. So the imagery associated with the term lean gives us further insight into what Solomon meant by trust in, in the first half of the verse. 
Solomon was instructing us to lean on the Lord and his wisdom rather than lean on our own understanding and insight. So Solomon is saying when the way we view things conflicts with the way God views things, we are to lean in his direction rather than our own direction. Solomon is saying when what makes sense to us doesn't line up with his, God's, revealed will, we are to side with God and ignore the whispers of our hearts. It's as if Solomon could read our minds. He wrote as if he had been following us around. Somehow he knew that our natural inclination was to choose our paths according to how they looked and how they felt to us. Solomon was saying that in spite of all you know and all you have experienced, don't make the mistake of thinking that you're old enough, wise enough, smart enough, experienced enough, careful enough to be able to lean on, as in trust, your own understanding and wisdom. So choosing the best path then begins with submission, not information. And when considering your option, they, the place to begin is, Lord, I'm leaning on you, not my experience, my insight, my education. When worldly wisdom conflicts with what you have revealed through the scriptures, I'll lean into your revelation rather than my understanding. When my emotions are in conflict with your word, I'll lean on your word and harness my emotions. Now, obviously, that is easier said than done. But observation and experience would argue that it is much easier in the long run to lean into the wisdom of your Heavenly Father than to lean into your own wisdom and understanding. Leaning on our own understanding has the potential to take us exactly where we don't want to go and never plan to be. Leaning on our own understanding in the arenas of finances, parenting, marriage, or any number of things has the potential to be seriously costly in so many ways. So far, the wisest man in the world has given us two important imperatives. They're not suggestions. They're almost as strong as the word command. We are to trust in and lean not. But that's only half the equation, half the verse. In the second half of the verse, he gives us a third command and a promise. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Notice he didn't say, in most of your ways, in most all of all your ways. He said, in all your ways. Solomon is not leaving us any wiggle room. In all your ways means your dating ways, your marriage ways, your entertainment ways, your financial ways, your education ways, your morality ways, the professional ways, your friendship ways, your family ways. He wasn't speaking of just your Sunday ways, your religious ways, your prayer ways. He means all. In every arena of life, we are to acknowledge God. So what does that really mean? Again, thanks for asking. Unfortunately, the word acknowledge has lost something over the years. If you ever listen to a public speaker or a sports figure or guest of honor at a fundraising banquet, typically they begin their comments by saying something like, 
I'd like to start by acknowledging so-and-so for blah, blah, blah. But when Solomon said the word acknowledge, he wasn't talking about a token tip of the hat or some sort of obligatory shout-out, giving God his props for being a nice guy. When Solomon uses the word acknowledge, when Solomon talks about acknowledging God, it means to recognize who he is and respond accordingly. And what is the proper response to God? Submission. We are to recognize God's authority over every component of our lives. We are to seek and submit to his will in every area of our lives. In other words, in all our ways. Then, that said, Solomon concludes with an extremely practical promise, and he will make your path straight. There's our word, path, the direction we are to take. Choices we make determine the path we take, which then determines the direction and the destination. Our word path, as in the way, the direction we are to take, the way we are to walk. But you need to note that at first glance, it looks as if Solomon is guaranteeing that if we trust God, submit to God, he will straighten out whatever path we choose. But what the verse is actually asserting is that God will make the best path obvious. So the point is, if we trust with all our heart, refuse to lean into our own limited understanding, acknowledge that he is God and Lord of your life, which is to submit every aspect of your life to him, then the best path will become unmistakably clear and you will reach the right destination. So divine direction or guidance begins with unconditional submission or surrender, not information. In our personal relationship with him that began when we became born again, God wants us to acknowledge him and his involvement in every aspect of our life. He has this relationship with us and he wants us to surrender, to surrender our whole heart, soul, mind and strength to him. Let him truly be Lord, not just Savior. So instead, instead of sending us a rule book to live by, as some think that the Bible is a rule book, instead of supplying us with a built-in GPS and a voice that quietly says, turn left at the next corner, so instead of giving us a matrix for decision-making, he simply asks us to trust him, to lean not on our own understanding and wisdom, and to acknowledge his right to rule and to guide and to direct. And then in exchange, he will make our path clear. We will know which way to go and what to choose. So divine direction begins with submission. Good information does not guarantee good decision making. Neither does insight or wisdom. Ironically, Solomon serves as both a best and worst case example. In spite of his great knowledge, unmatched insight, vast wisdom, there was a time in Solomon's life when he decided to trust in his own understanding, and he paid dearly. In fact, the entire nation paid for that decision to lean on his own flawed understanding, limited perspective. As is typically the case, his flawed logic had to do with his choice in women. 
When God established the nation of Israel, he strictly forbade the men to marry foreign women. That included the king. In fact, this command was especially important for the king to obey for a couple of valid reasons. One, as the king goes, so goes the nation. And number two, kings generally married foreigners as a way to ensure good relations with nearby and oftentimes hostile neighbors. God did not want Israel's leaders leaning into their neighbors for protection. He did not want his leaders to marry into the family, the leading families of other nations so that the other nations would therefore protect them and not attack them. He wanted his nation, his people, to rely solely on him. But in this one area, Solomon opted for the conventional wisdom, the worldly wisdom of the day, over obedience and submission to God. So Solomon married Pharaoh's daughter. You'll find that in 1 Kings 3. Politically speaking, it was a great move. Israel would never need to worry about going to war with the powerful nation of Egypt. But as strategic as his decision might have been, it was in direct conflict with the command of God. Solomon, by making this decision to marry Pharaoh's daughter, was declaring his dependency on a foreign king rather than his trusting God. In an attempt to ensure peace and avoid bloodshed, Solomon opted for a path that would eventually divide his heart and his loyalties. Ultimately, his decision would divide the entire kingdom. Pharaoh's daughter was just the beginning. Once he aligned himself with Egypt, it must have dawned on him that Egypt's enemies had just become his enemies. So once again, conventional wisdom whispered in his ear, and he listened. Eventually, he married women from just about every nation in the region. The writer of 1 Kings describes it this way. 1 Kings chapter 11, we're reading verses 1 to 3. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had several hundred wives, princesses, and three hundred concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Seven hundred wives. Think about that. Seven hundred mothers-in-law. What was he thinking? Apparently he wasn't. And don't miss the last line of that passage. And his wife's turned his heart away. Away from what? Well, you find that answer, the answer to that question, in the verses that follows. 1 Kings 11, verses 4 and 5. For when Solomon was old, his wife's turned his heart away from other gods. Sorry, his wife's turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Melcom, the detestable idol of the Amorites. Ammonites. Solomon's decision to prioritize his relationships with foreign kings over his relationship with God cost him his relationship with God.
not because God pulled away, but because Solomon's heart was pulled away. A decision designed to protect his nation. A decision that looked wise at the moment, ultimately in time, as he followed that path, corrupted his heart. He ended at a destination he had never wanted to arrive at. He turned his heart away from the thing God desired most, his relationship with him. A relationship characterized by dependence and trust, or submission, or lordship. When Solomon opted for what made sense culturally, he leaned away from what made sense relationally. And in time, his heart was corrupted. Before long, he was allowing things that earlier in his reign as king, he would have had people executed for. He actually financed the construction of altars to the pagan gods Shemosh and Moloch. You'll find that in 1 Kings 11.7. This was unthinkable, unimaginable. A direct violation of the first of the Ten Commandments, as we see in Exodus chapter 20. But in his confused state, these decisions made perfect sense to the wisest man in the world. Why? Because submission, not talent, not information, not insight, not experience, submission is the key to good decision-making. Once Solomon abandoned his posture of surrender, he made one bad decision after another. And so once again we see a smart person plagued by bad decisions which led him to a destination he never wanted to go to. In his attempt to strengthen Israel's relationship with her neighbors, Solomon actually weakened it. And soon after his death, the nation was divided into two weaker kingdoms. And for generations, these two lesser kingdoms would be plagued by a series of kings who followed Solomon's example of marrying foreign women and adopting their pagan religious practices. Solomon chose a path he sincerely believed would shore up the nation's national security. But the path he chose undermined the nation's dependency on God and ultimately eroded the nation's moral fabric. His decision was not merely a decision. It was a path. And like all paths, it had a destination. The moral of the story is this. In order to make the best decisions now, we need much more than information, common sense, or conventional worldly wisdom. We need God. We need to live with a posture of dependency, submission. We need to acknowledge him in all our ways. We don't know exactly what motivated Solomon to make such a radical departure from what he knew God asked of him. Was it pride? Hmm. After all, he was the wisest man in the kingdom and everybody knew it. Was it fear? Did the fact that he ruled the wealthiest kingdom in the region cause him to feel like a target for his neighbors? Perhaps it was lust, maybe a combination of all three. We don't know. But what we do learn from this narrative, from this story, is that apparently pride, fear, and lust all have the potential to override wisdom, discernment, and insight. One or a combination of those three lured the wisest man in the world down a path no one would have ever imagined him traveling. 
and regardless of his power and his experience, he still arrived at the prescribed destination. If the wisdom, understanding, and insight of a man like Solomon does not ensure against choosing the wrong path, isn't it foolish for us to lean on our limited insight and understanding? If Solomon needed something other than his own intuition to protect him from a misguided decision, how about you and I? Solomon's story should give each of us reason for concern, because deep in our hearts we all believe that we're too smart to make decisions that will adversely affect our lives. Deep in our hearts, we are convinced that we are too careful, too shrewd, too experienced. And that's because our propensity is to lean on our own understanding, to trust our own judgment. In spite of Solomon's story and our many years of going down the wrong paths, our natural bent will always be towards trusting in ourselves. We will be inclined to make decisions based on conventional or worldly wisdom. So we each have a choice to make, a continuing choice. Will we surrender to the will of our Heavenly Father, or will we continue to lean on our own wisdom and our own understanding and insight? Will we acknowledge God in all our ways, or will we pick and choose? Remember, every path we choose has a destination. Every choice we make has a future consequence. Direction, not intention, determines destination. Divine direction get with, begins with submission. Information is not enough. Insight is not enough. We need God. And so you are invited to trust in the Lord with all of your heart. You are told not to lean on your own understanding or wisdom. You are asked to acknowledge him in all of your ways. And if you do that, he will make your path straight. He will make the right path, the right choice, so obvious you can't miss it. So let me leave you with three questions. Why do you hesitate to give God full access to every part of your life? Why do you hesitate to give God full access to every part of your life? In other words, why do you hesitate to make God Lord, Jesus Lord. Second question, why, what do I fear will happen on the other side of that decision to trust? What is it that you fear is going to happen when you make a decision to trust? And the third question is, what is the most difficult area of my life to yield control of to God? What is the most difficult area, aspect of your life that you have the most problem yielding control of to God. Just three questions to think about in the coming week.